Hey folks, this is Michael, and I'm back. Those of you who listen to Tatter regularly will be aware that there has not been a new episode since August of last calendar year, and that's because I had an extremely busy and draining fall semester. But fall semester is over, a new semester is beginning, a new calendar year is beginning, and I already have not one, but two interviews in the bag, so I'm hoping that this is a good omen and that this semester is going to allow me to stay in the tatter saddle more regularly. In this episode, as always, I do want to point out that unless a guest says that they speak for anyone else, you should assume that they speak for themselves and themselves alone. With that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. If you Google Project Implicit, you'll be directed to a website where you can take an Implicit Association Test, or IAT. As noted on previous episodes of this podcast, the IAT is an extremely well-known test, with millions having completed one at the Project Implicit website. An example, maybe the most well-known example of an IAT, is a race IAT. You could do one at the Project Implicit website. You would use two keys, one for your left hand and one for your right, to respond to images and words on screen. On each of a series of trials, so over and over and over, you would see an image or a word, and you'd use the keys to classify it. The images would each be a photo of a black person's face or a white person's face, and the words would each be a positive word, such as love, or a negative word, such as vomit. For part of the task, you would use one key for the black faces and the negative words, meaning the opposite key would be for white faces and positive words. So call that the black plus negative pairing, because black and negative are assigned the same response key. But you could obviously also call it the white plus positive pairing. For another part of the task, you'd respond to the same faces and the same words, but on this part, you'd use one key for black faces and positive words, meaning the opposite key would be for white faces and negative words. Call that the white plus negative pairing, because white and negative would be on the same key. The typical finding, at least among white Americans, is to respond more slowly when working under the white plus negative pairing than when working under the black plus negative pairing. One interpretation, though not the only one, is that this difference in speed is due to prior mental associations between black and negative, and also between white and positive, that are stronger than the converse associations. In short, one interpretation is that this difference, this IAT effect, is reflective of a kind of implicit bias. Indeed, if you completed the IAT at the Project Implicit website, you might get feedback, because feedback is delivered. You might get feedback indicating that, to one degree or another, you have an automatic preference for white people over black people. Since its introduction to the published literature, the IAT has been highly influential in social psychological research, and the idea of implicit bias has been highly influential in popular discourse about discrimination. But there's still debate among psychologists as to what implicit bias might actually be and about what the IAT actually measures, as well as what the appropriate uses are for the IAT. In this episode, I feature my conversation with two psychologists who have thought a lot about these issues. Uli Shamak is a psychologist at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and the author of a 2019 paper that offers a critical review of evidence regarding the validity of the IAT. And that paper includes reanalysis of prior data on different versions of the IAT. Shamak's results leave him skeptical of the IAT's validity, as indicated by his title, quote, the Implicit Association Test, A Method in Search of a Construct, end quote. Will Cunningham is a psychologist at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. As a social cognition researcher, he has thought a great deal about the IAT and the processes it might reflect. He's also an author of one paper whose data Shamak reanalyzed. The three of us had a lively conversation, touching on such questions as what implicit really means, what kinds of science could actually be useful in understanding racial inequality, the usefulness of the IAT specifically, and also the appropriateness of giving feedback at the Project Implicit website. 
and now share that conversation in this episode, which is titled Measure for Measure. I'm someone who actually used to do a lot of work in the domain of implicit bias, implicit prejudice. Uh, in fact, that's Will Cunningham. I started my PhD at Yale in 1998, yep. which of course is the same year that the IET came out. Uh, I did my project at William & Mary before even going to Yale. Uh, yep. The IET, so it's kind of funny that some of the data that we're going to talk about today is even pre-Yale data. Okay. And so I think I was a ground zero for a lot of the initial work, seeing what was happening, some of the discussions that were going on. And it's kind of interesting, uh, years later, as we're still struggling with a lot of the same questions. And I just want to jump in to clarify for anyone who knows uh, Mazarin Banaji's uh, background, uh, they might know that she is at Harvard now, but she was at Yale at the time. Yes. Uh, Uli, what about you? Tell us a little bit about your background, including how you got interested in the IAT. Well, um, so I got my education in Germany. And uh, in my department, psychological measurement, psychometrics was a very important focus. So I've always been interested in how can we even measure things that are pretty vague, like uh, personality traits, attitudes. And uh, then when I went to the United States as a postdoc, I started being interested in how can we measure things as complicated as well-being you know, these vague concepts. And, you know, when we get our measures from participants, usually self-report, are they even valid? People can lie on these measures. So can we really trust them? So there was always doubt about, you know, the quality of the measures that I'm obtaining. And uh, when the IIT came about, uh, it was this great idea that, you know, we could finally measure things without having to ask people. We can just get their reaction times and, and make inferences based on that. Uh, and there was some excitement to use it in well-being research. And uh, once I was a professor at uh, University of Toronto in my lab, we did a little study trying to examine the validity of a happiness IIT. Mm. And we used both self-ratings, but because we don't fully trust them, also informant ratings to validate them. And it just didn't pan out that the IIT was giving us anything useful when we used self or informant ratings as a criterion to see whether it helps something. And so that's where I started to become more critical, you know, that this test is actually working. There were some other publications using it to measure implicit self-esteem that showed some problems. So, yeah, I cooled off quite a bit on the idea that we finally have this magical tool to measure things without having to ask people. And I will also add my own uh, origin story as someone who's developed interest uh, in the IAT. I'm a faculty member at uh, Bates College uh, here in Maine. And when I first uh, got here in 1999, uh, I hadn't yet actually read the 98 uh, paper, so shame on me for being a year behind in reading uh, JP issues of JPSB. But soon after arriving, uh, I read the Greenwald, McGee, and Schwartz paper, and I got really excited because, uh, uh, similar to what you were saying, Uli, I was really excited uh, as someone interested in racial bias, uh, like a lot of people. I was excited about the prospect of a measure that would allow us to assess racial bias without asking people because, uh, obviously, people might not be willing to be honest about biases of which they are aware. And also there's this idea that we might not have complete introspective access to our biases. There might be biases we can't report accurately because we're not aware of them. And so I thought, what an exciting tool. And when I took, uh, actually took the measure myself, I could, as many people report, I could feel the greater difficulty when black and positive and white and negative uh, were paired uh, compared to the other way around. And I thought, this is really something that could be exciting. But over the years, um, I would say that my own excitement about it uh, has become more complicated, uh, is the way I would put it. I'm still excited about it as a research tool, uh, but I think that the ways in which it's really taken off in the popular culture, I, I wonder if uh, in some cases, I suspect uh, that the excitement has, has gone beyond uh, what the data actually warrant. But I want to talk to the two of you about your views there. So that that's my story, and here I'm 
I guess, as qualitative researchers would say, that was my reflexiv- re- reflexivity statement uh, for you. All um, right, but I, now I have a question for you. Okay, a question for me. I, All right, go for it. <laughs> uh, being black, I mean, because... I mean, we all expected maybe some white people to show bias against black people on the IAT, but so yep. many people had the experience being black that suddenly they get a feedback that they have now some hidden, you know, biases against their own group. Like Malcolm Gladwell is a famous example, but so you have it. I know some other people who had that experience and it was a bit distressing because how do you reconcile that? Because I, I assume it's not something that, jives with your conscious experience with black people. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, I, I did not walk away from the IIT thinking, gee, I guess this means I'm a self-hating black. Uh, uh, but rather, I thought, uh, clearly, my views of my own group are at odds with what this measure is telling me. And one, the way that I've accounted for it is, even if the measure is valid, what it may be uh, indicating with, valid, with some degree of validity is the extent to which I have been exposed to the same negative cultural stereotypes of African-Americans as everyone else, even though I consciously uh, reject right. them. Right. But, but in, a, in a way, this really goes to my first question that I want to put to each of you, which I'll, I'll say it's a set of questions that fall into the general rubric. What are we even talking about when we are talking about implicit bias? And so... The way that I'll start is by, uh, and I'm, I'm going to throw. I'm, gonna throw that, so I'm kind of curious about even, yeah, where we've gone with this because we're talking about some of our experiences back in the late 1990s. Yep. And I think that you guys are hitting on something that was really interesting. I think at that time, you know, being a student who was getting interested in questions of prejudice, stereotyping, and things like that, um, I was using measures like evaluative priming, questionnaire yep. measures, where, of course, the questionnaire measures, the range of sk- scores you would get range from strongly, very strongly, extremely disagreeing with an item to just very disagreeing right, with an item. And I think that one thing that a lot of us that had the excitement about the IIT very early on had to do some degree of self-reflection that followed some of the ways I think we were thinking about things in the late 1990s, there's always a sense of those people out there Mm. likely have some sense of bias. And I'll be honest, again, I, like you, have a very complicated idea of the IET. I think all three of us probably have some degrees of complications, but I think that one thing that became very useful for a lot of us was after taking the IET the first time, I think that I became much more reflective about my own thoughts. You know, when I saw people on the streets noticing that I might be uncomfortable or the appraisal that I might have about someone who is going to be panhandling, I think there was something really useful at that time in the late 90s. Again, whether the IIT lives up to what we think the IIT was back then, I think there was something very useful that. I personally had about my own self-reflections about realizing that there were things outside of just those other people. Um, And I think that a lot of us had that experience. And I think that one thing that we need to think about with this conversation is, right, there's the IT as it stood in the late 1990s and what we all believed on ourselves. We, I think, are now in a culture where there's a lot more recognition about bias, a lot more recognition about prejudice. But you're, you're, you're saying there's more recognition now. Yeah, in general, just you know the way that people talk, the way the undergraduates talk. But you know, as an undergraduate in the 1990s, I think we all thought we were all pretty awesome. You know, in terms of you know these beliefs. Whereas I think that undergrads now, you know, have a different kind of understanding about systemic bias and things like that. So. Again, I think there's some interesting history effects that I think that we need to think about in terms of the utility of the IET in its time versus the IET now. That's interesting. I I wonder if, insofar as you're right about uh, people in the late 90s, uh, uh, especially, uh, to be quite frank, uh, white liberals no, exactly. in, the, in the 90s, thinking hey, we're awesome, we're, we're, yep. we're egalitarian in our commitments, and also in how we interact with others. 
I would suspect, having grown up in Arkansas in the Deep South, mm-hmm. that you would have found some regional differences. Yes. And that I suspect white liberals in the South might have even then already been more cognizant mm-hmm. of their own potential for bias. Um, I was in Virginia, and you know, again, Williamsburg, Virginia might not be regular Virginia, but, <laughs> uh, but even there, I think that there, there was a little bit of a surprise. Yeah. Uh, again, you know, the white liberal effect, and again, even the, we're going to talk about the problems of the IT, of course, in this whole conversation. But I think that even if it was overblown, the conclusion we took from it, there was a utility in that conversation, and I think the IT at least helped with the initiation of that conversation. Uh, as I said, I I grew up in Germany. I uh, moved to the United States first time really when I was thirty, and so I, I just have a different experience. And for me, it was just first of all, you know, a new experience to encounter black people more regularly, but also um, that there was blatant racism. And people at the university had no problem. I was at Illinois University mm-hmm. and talking about the south side of Chicago and don't go there and on the other side of the railway track. So uh, the really interesting question would be then how people in the 90s were maintaining the belief that they have no racial biases, which for me is still the question. How can people really believe that they have no biases? That's a big question here. Yeah, and I I agree with you entirely on that because looking back on it, it's fascinating. Like you said, it's almost like this – dissonance effect somehow maybe not dissonance is the quite right word but it was shocking how ignorant i think many of us were about our own virtue and um you're right looking back on it how we believe that is a surprising thing and certainly i i've used in my own classroom the iat to get students uh so here at bates we have a predominantly white campus overwhelmingly liberal and a lot of those students go around, I think, uh, perhaps less so now than in the past. But certainly when I arrived, I think that there, a lot of the students were the white liberals who might think of themselves as racially innocent in a way that was punctured when they took the IAT, uh, whatever the validity (laughs) of it might be. But I've used it for, as a kind of consciousness raising tool to get us to reflect on our own potential for bias. But, but what I want to talk about now is what we mean when we, when we use the term implicit and, and let's, let's take the the implicit association test. Mm -hmm. Implicit could be a modifier of association. So the associations themselves, uh, if we're thinking about um, uh, evaluative associations, so attitudes, the idea is that's somehow implicit. Or implicit could be a modifier of test, meaning the measure itself is implicit. And so my first question is, when you think about the implicit association test, do you think that, do you think of implicit as a modifier of association or of test? Yeah, I think the proper way to use it is uh, that it characterizes the test, I would say. Even then, I would say, we are very bad in psychology to define things properly and use terms properly. So uh, the term implicit in itself is so vague and unclear that, you know, it's an, it's a vague modifier. So even if you're saying, well, we're not going to modify the associations, we're going to modify the test part in the end, we need to first clearly specify what we mean by implicit really. Uh, And, you know, I think one, big distinction that I find always useful is to distinguish between uncontrollable and unconscious or without awareness, basically. And I think, you know, if we would just be clear about that part, because in many articles, it's always like, it's one or it could be the other or it's both, and it's always vague. Instead of saying, you know, we we clearly mean it is one and not the other, or we really believe it's both or something like that. Just to clarify I can understand the distinction between uncontrollable and unconscious if what we're referring to is the association. But I I don't fully understand what it would mean to say that a test is uncontrollable or a test is unconscious. There, when I I use implicit to refer to the test, I simply mean that it's not a, I, I guess I use it as synonymous with indirect in that we're not 
asking people to report on the association, but we are inferring it from their response. Uh, but if we're talking about uncontrollability and unconsciousness, those seem to me to be characteristics of the association itself. Uh, w- would you disagree with any of that, Uli? No, I think you just brought up a third meaning of implicit, which is really just, it's not uh, self-report, mm-hmm. right, basically. So indirect would probably be a better term for that, but it, implicit is sometimes used uh, in that sense as well. So we already have three different meanings. Uh, and maybe the, the most cautious way would be to just say uh, implicit test just means we're not using self-report. Honestly, and then I, we could I, all agree, yeah, that's true. So we all agree on that one. But I think <laughs> controversy is somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Will, Will, is there more you want to add? Yeah, I, mean, I, I haven't actually used the word implicit since I was actually a graduate student. Really? Any of this. No, uh, I mean, for, for the exact reason that we're talking about right here, that I mean, even if you look back at like Barge's like 1989, what's it, uh, unintended thought book, I mean, he was already making these distinctions between these different levels of analysis. I think that the word implicit comes from uh, a theoretical tradition in memory from the 1980s with Graf um, and Schachter. And I think there was a sense at the time when the test came out that that was the model of memory that was going to underlie all of this. Uh, we applied the measure to the dominant memory model that we thought was going to be the important one. And I think that as a field, we've generally recognized that that is not the best way of representing this. I think even Mazarin now uh, talks about the implicit measure. And I, again, I think she's meaning this as an indirect measure. And it's just, I think that this implicit explicit is a baggage of the way we were conceptualizing things as a field in the 1980s. And I personally would rather kind of get away from that term because I think we all agree it has so much conceptual baggage that I think gets in the way of understanding what's going on in the phenomenon. Well, unless the IAT is going to be renamed, we're stuck with it as a part of that name. But be that as it may, when we think about the IAT and think about what it's what it's measuring, one of the questions, and this goes back to psychometrics, which uh, Uli mentioned, one of the questions that always comes up when you're trying to determine how uh, good a measure is, as I tell my students, is how reliable it is. Uh, and when I talk with my students, I think about, I ask them to think about reliability in terms of internal consistency. So, so do the components that make up the measure, do they hang together? Uh, are they consistent with one another? Are they correlated? But then also temporal stability is the, is uh, with within a period of time within which it's unlikely that you're going to see true score change on the measure. Do you see similar scores from the same people across time? Um, and obviously, feel free to amend my conception of reliability if you wish. But I wonder what your thoughts are on the reliability. Uh, of the IIT. Is it a reliable measure or is it not a reliable measure? Does it depend upon which kind of IIT we're talking about? So when I say IIT, often students think of the race IIT, but of course there's the self-esteem IIT, uh, political IITs. What what are some of your thoughts on the reliability of those measures? Uh, Will, you want to go first? I mean, that was actually one of the main concerns I had actually when I was a master's student at William & Mary, right before even starting my PhD, that looking at the reaction time measures if you computed these things, if you took courses in structural equation modeling and things like that, they seem disastrous. <laughs> um, that said, there, and again, this is where Uli and I are in agreement, there are statistical techniques that you can use to deal with it. And one of the things I think is the most surprising thing is when you get citations for a paper that's not what the paper was about my 2001 paper um, looking at some of these psychometrics and one that Uli uh, did some nice reanalyses of the point of that paper was that you had to model these things. You had to think about measurements because the substantive claims that you would come up with were radically sometimes different by modeling the data properly or not. So I think that reaction time measures inherently are going to be less reliable than a questionnaire. 
The question is, can we statistically deal with it is a separate question. And I think that as a field, we need to be modeling our data, especially unreliable measures, much better. But as a simple, just different score, it's pretty disastrous. Well, and uh, to add to this, uh, I mean, for me, I think uh, it's important to say, you know, a measure is not reliable or not reliable. We can quantify that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the IT party got popular because it is more reliable than other indirect implicit measures like evaluative priming. So it's not terrible on that note. But an important distinction is also to make between measurement and assessment. And measurement means, you know, we can have moderately reliable measures that still can be used for research purposes to see, does my measure now predict a behavior um, uh, or things like that, see a correlation. And then if you want, we can use techniques to adjust for unreliability to get maybe at the true strengths of the relationship and all that. And that's all research. But where I really have a problem with is you know, with the implicit uh, project uh, where people go online, like Michael, you did, and uh, you you get a score, a feedback about your uh, uh, implicit bias. And reliability, you know, needs to be really, really high to give people individual feedback. A lot of work is done to make IQ scores at least reliable. You know, we can talk about their validity. Next question, but they're reliable. Uh, but the IT doesn't have the reliability that would be needed to be able to say, you took a test, here's your score, now reflect on your implicit bias. You got feedback that you show prejudice. So think about your prejudice. You don't think you're prejudiced? Well, think again, because the test just revealed it. And uh, this criticism has been voiced for decades. And the uh, authors behind Project Implicit, like Banaji, Greenwald, Nozak, you know, are just mute and deaf and and uh, don't care and just continue to give thousands of people a day false feedback about some so-called hidden implicit bias and I think that's unethical. So ju ju just just to, ju ju if I could just it sounds as if both Will and I may want to uh, push back a little bit on that. I just want to uh, go to this 2015 paper, the importance of small to moderate IET effects that. Uh, Greenwald, Banaji, and Brian Nosick uh, published. We're on, on uh, page 557, and I think I included this quote in the sample questions I sent ahead of time, so less listeners think this is a game of gotcha. Um, I, even Greenwald, uh, Banaji, and Nosick uh, um, point out that there's moderate uh, test-retest reliability, small to moderate predictive validity effect sizes, and they say, quote, therefore attempts to diagnostically use such measures for individuals, risk undeniably high rates of erroneous uh, classifications, end quote. So, uh, Uli, what would you say to someone who says the fact that they have acknowledged this in 2015 means they're not blind to this? Well, that would be like Volkswagen saying, yes, we acknowledge that our cars emit more uh, toxic uh, uh, substances than we actually say, and then keep doing it instead of fixing the problem. So at least tell people, Look, we appreciate it that you're taking IT online. We use it for our research. We like collecting data, but the feedback we're giving you is absolutely useless. Don't or, or not give them feedback. Just ask for them to participate. But to get you know millions of people, so you have large samples for your research, with a false reward that they get feedback about their personality, it just seems dishonest to me. So, well, yeah, I'm just kind of curious about what recommendation you might want to have in terms of let's imagine we want to actually give something like feedback right one can imagine by the way this is really impractical you could say please come back to the IT website every day for the next three months right because presumably the reliability of the measure across time on an IT a day for two months probably would be a much more reliable metric I, is there a way in your head do you think that given that there actually is, because we're going to get to validity later, signal in there, like how would you want to get signal to people? Okay, so uh, 
this is actually interesting. I, I did a self-experiment. I did the race IIT for uh, several weeks, and uh, I got scores all over the board. At some point also, you get so good you could fake it. And I'm like, I'm, I'm trying not to fake it. But then you're like, well, maybe I'm unconsciously faking it. So, uh, so their training effects, your IT scores will change as a function of that. But the biggest issue is really that in the end, you get then a reliable score. But we all know reliability is just you know, necessary, not sufficient to give people accurate feedback. We can have a very reliable IQ test and it gives you the wrong information about your intelligence because it's biased or invalid. So the biggest question, and that is really what my paper was about, is that, you know, even if we could fix a problem of modest reliability and just with repeated measures increase it, uh, we still have the issue like what does the score that you then get mean? It's consistent now, but what does it measure? What is implicit bias really? And in which way does this test reflect anything about your, you know, personality, your traits, your, your attitudes? So that's meaningful. So can I ask you a question on this? Cause again, you know, cause we wrote the commentary and, you know, we made the comment saying your model team finds us. Um, the one thing that I was surprised at in the way that you wrote about it. And also in the U of T, um, press release is that when I looked at your models, the conclusion I took away from was, again, I don't actually believe in the dual attitude model and I haven't for quite some time. And, and just to clarify for listeners, the dual attitude model presumes that implicit attitudes as a construct are, are distinct from explicit attitudes. Okay. So when I looked at a lot of your models, what I took away was, wow, this actually seems to be providing validity for the IET across domains as a measure of a similar construct, right, as explicit. Whereas you, you, you took away saying this doesn't seem useful. And in my head, I said, I looked at it saying this seems like it's actually giving utility to the IET, right? If it actually is in a reaction time associative way where you don't have to act policy statements, this or that, if it's getting at the same construct and you can improve the reliability of it, that seems like it is a sense of validity. And, well, and, and before Uli responds, just to make right. sure I'm clear, Will, what you're suggesting is that you saw Uli's uh, analyses as suggesting the validity of the IAT given an assumption of a singular exactly. uh, underlying attitude. Exactly. Uli, what do you think? All right. So two issues. First of all, uh, we have to distinguish now between different IITs. Yeah. So the self-esteem IIT shows absolutely no validity whatsoever. And it's uh, basically been shown that it doesn't really have validity or that there's no evidence for validity in 2000. Mm -hmm. This didn't stop Greenwald from publishing a 2001 paper about implicit self-esteem that then, of course, because it was written by him, you know, created a whole literature on implicit self-esteem that was contrasted with whatever you uh, report or uh, uh, receive feedback on, on the Rosenberg self-esteem scale. So there was this, you know, you might think you have high self-esteem, but it's probably fragile because your hidden self-esteem is different and, and low and, you know, you're more vulnerable and all kinds of theories based on a totally invalid measure. And since 2000, there has been never any evidence that it's valid. And it's, you know, just perpetuated that, you know, there's something that we could call implicit self-esteem. So for, for self-esteem, I'd, I want to see anybody defending implicit self-esteem. Uh, there's no empirical scientific evidence for it. When we get to the race IIT, what I show in my paper is that, you know, when we now have an IT score and it's like from a single measure, so it's still attenuated by reliability, maybe about... Uh, it's attenuated by measurement error, you mean? Uh, attenuated by measurement error, yeah. Uh, so when we have this IT score and we have it from a lot of different people, uh, maybe about 20% of the variation in these scores reflects something about the person's actual racial biases or preferences. And the main point, though, is that, you know, 
this variation is not distinct or cannot be separated from the same variation that we see when we just ask people, how much do you like black people? How warm do you feel towards white people? And we get variation in that. And some people, at least in an anonymous survey situation, are honestly saying, you know, I'm white. I like white people a bit better, right? And so the whole claim of the IIT is, you know, when we get to the idea that implicit means uh, unconscious or uncontrollable, there's no evidence for that, that whatever we are tapping in these scores is unconscious because people are telling us to us, you know, under conditions where they feel it's safe, uh, that they have these biases. Okay. So not everybody is a repressed liberal who is not aware of those feelings. And in the end, it also doesn't mean it's uncontrollable. I might have these feelings, but I don't let them influence my behavior. So, so okay. a lot of additional claims that have been made about IT scores that, you know, they leak into our behaviors in ways we can't even control because we're not aware of them. That's what I push back against because there's no evidence for it. Yeah, and I, th I think this is actually getting at the crux of the conversation in a sense because there, there seems to be two things we can talk about, which are the IAT and the validity of the numbers that come out of the IAT versus the validity of the dual attitude model that was initially proposed to account for the IAT. And I think those are two separate conversations in a sense, right? Because, again, I'm someone who hasn't believed in the dual attitude model you know, for a decade and a half. But I think several statements Uli just said that were really important, right? You said, we will find these correlations in this anonymous setting when people feel free that they can, right? It suggested that if the IT is capturing attitudinal information, there will be times that the IAT will be useful even if it doesn't measure something different, right? And I think that, that so it becomes a conditional utility statement rather than it's useful versus not useful. All right, but let me ask you because I think the title of my paper and the change, but I like the title the way it is now, is like, you know, a measure in search of a construct, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's the crux of it, that in the end, you know, in psychology, it's not like here's a certain thing that we, we want to measure, and now let's find the best measure for it. In psychology, we play around, we find some fun thing that is good for research. Everybody loves the IIT to play around with it, right? We have no idea what it measures, but that's the fun of research. We're going to now find out what it measures. But, you know, that's not how it works in the other sciences, right? You know, we know how a telescope works so that we can look into the sky and make observations about the universe, right? And so here the problem is for anybody who uses the IIT or who says it's valid like you, you have to tell me what it is a valid measure of. So what okay. is the construct? So what do you think it is a valid measure of? Okay, so uh, those are great questions. And um, I think that I, perhaps the field of social cognition was not terribly great at articulating the fact that being in that field, I think that what you just asked is the question is what we've been struggling with for 20 years. Right, as you, you know, cite in your paper, Russ Fazio, right, has never believed in you know this distinction between implicit versus explicit attitudes. You know, Bertram Goronsky has different hypotheses about what underlies you know these different measures, and the field has been very theoretical, and there has been a lot of work in social cognition trying to figure out these competing models. I think what you're responding to, which is, you know, this aspect is valid, is that what is the lay conceptualization of the IAT was connected with a single model. And being in this field, when I go to the conferences, I feel like we're debating constructs. You know, the whole field has been a conversation about constructs. It just, what I think that you're responding to, perhaps, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that one model was given to the world and whether that one model is the best understanding 
of something we're still trying to figure out whether that's valid. So if, if I could actually uh, put a question to Uli I, I, uh, that I was thinking of as you were talking, well, it might, um, it might invite him to speak to that if I may. And, and that question okay. is Uli, uh, Uli, um, what's your reaction uh, to this argument? And the argument is what we're seeing uh, in the field as a debate, the debate to which Will just referred, uh, continues. As a debate continues regarding what the meaning is of the IIT. And it's a debate about the meaning of, at least if we're talking about this IIT effect, it's a really robust phenomenon. And so we have this robust phenomenon that the meaning of which is being debated within the field. That's what we want in science. Would you agree with that, Uli, if, if, we, if we were having that debate without A, giving feedback at Project Implicit, and B, if there weren't the kind of popular popularization, say, at tolerance.org, where the measure is being given away and uh, in the lay public's understanding, people are running away with this understanding uh, of it as a valid predictor of, say, police officers' tendencies to, to discriminate. If that, if that weren't happening, so if, let's, say the, let's say, imagine the, the public didn't even know about this. Would you agree that this is actually a good example of science? We got this robust phenomenon where people are debating. Like, is it is it that lay understanding to which Will referred? Is that what's uh, 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 underlying your concern fundamentally? No, I think uh, you know uh, we're still not doing good science. And my argument would be that you know even even if the public never had even yeah, heard of the idea. I tell you why. I tell you why because you know. There's a lot of white people in the ivory tower, and it's called ivory tower, maybe for a reason, you know, <laughs> who spent their time doing little experiments with undergraduate students and playing around and creating models to explain their data that they get in these artificial laboratory tasks. But they're getting grant money to do all that, and they're getting paid because they're supposed to address a real social issue, discrimination, prejudice in the real world. And we know that exists and it's going on every day and nothing that is happening in the ivory tower has anything to do with these real world problems of prejudice it's just white people talking to each other about models of social cognition and maybe what we need is an ebony tower where people say well what should science do it should solve real world problems and we should really start with the observation that in the real world there is discrimination, housing discrimination, job discrimination. There's prejudice, you know. And now we want to understand these behaviors, and we want to also find ways to see who is acting that way. Well, so I maybe we want to be able to say, can we really have a valid measure to screen out officers, you know, from the police force who would act based on their racial bias and not to enforce the law? And then we would try to find ways to get the best valid measures of that. And that is what's sold to the public, that that is what is happening in the ivory tower. And it's not happening because, you know, we have spent 20 years playing around with something, creating models, and we haven't gotten any better tool to predict police officers' behavioral tendencies. For example, my colleague has done a study with Ontario police officers and examined whether the uh, race IIT predicts shooting errors. And, you know, it didn't. It, it just didn't. And, and so we have all these thousands of articles based on something that has no practical utility. Yeah, we have had to say... I feel like you crossed many levels of resolution there simultaneously. I mean, and I was curious, right, because it sounds like you really want a tool to screen the police officers and things like that. And, but I think this is why we have multi-level science, right? There is money going to sociologists studying structural issues. There are, there's money going to people understanding all these different levels of resolution and social cognition is just one of the levels of resolution. Perhaps the measures in social cognition are not giving rise to the type of things that get to shooting prediction, but are you saying that all of social cognition has no utility? Because it seems that 
you want to really be measures of things that have immediate impact. And is that the only thing that you think has validity? Well, what I'm saying is that, you know, the, the measure has been sold as being important to addressing these issues. But I think we're not trying to get at the question. What hasn't been done is, for example, to show that it predicts actual behavior. You know, I mean, many psychologists in the old days at least were like, here's the study of human behavior. And major critical articles have been written that, you know, in the end, social cognition researchers, you know, find it, of course, much easier to do quick reaction time studies that can be done within one hour rather than to look at can we have certain interventions that help people who actually have biases but don't want to have those biases to reduce them. But so, when you look at the prejudice reduction literature, there has been nothing useful being produced in decades of research. But right. you can't tell me that people openly and honestly said, look, our research is just theoretical. It has no practical applications. The whole area of prejudice research in social psychology is sold as addressing these important issues. It just the, doesn't. The thing is that something like the social cognitive processes can give rise to an effect that gives rise to an effect that gives rise, right? And by the time you're getting to police shooting, right, it's really difficult. It's, it's not the proximal cause. But this, I'm thinking about the same way that, you know, we learn about ion channels, right, in neuroscience. And ion channels are going to be things that eventually lead to a behavioral response, right? But a measure of that may not give rise to the very pragmatic thing that you want. And I'm just curious about the degree to which all science has to have, right, that immediate predicting behavior as opposed to if level analysis A informs level analysis B, which informs level analysis C, which informs level analysis D, right, and then D predicts real-world behavior, right, well, well, they all have utility. But before Uli responds, Will, I have a question for you because I wanted to clarify my understanding yeah. of what you think the uh, state of our current knowledge regarding the IAT warrants in terms of inference. Mm -hmm. Given our current understanding of the IAT, is it your sense that the only inferences that would be justified regarding its uh, practical impact are of this indirect sort that you're describing, which is the IAT describes processes that give rise to processes at a, a higher level of analysis that ultimately might give rise to more, uh, say, this more consequential sorts yeah. of processes that Uli is concerned about? Or do you think we already know of more direct uh, relevance uh, of the IAT that doesn't uh, require this sort of indirect uh, of sort of sort of ladder of inference yeah. that you're describing. So what I was more just kind of pushing back on a little bit was the. I understand. Is, is that I'm I'm a basic researcher, and I think this is where Uli and I kind of come from different perspectives on this, and I think both the different levels of analysis have utility for different things. My, I believe that for the most part, that these social cognitive biases that we have have to be translated into something else, typically to manifest, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be very difficult to find times where when you've also measured the thing, right, that's at that more proximal level of analysis, the IET is ever going to predict above and beyond that. I think it's going to be a very rare time that we actually find that at a pragmatic level of analysis. So for certain questions, the IET may not be useful. But if you're interested in what gives rise to the proximal thing sometimes, then these mechanisms and these theories have importance, right? So I think that that's where I'm curious about how you can have basic science that isn't predicting police shooting directly but it may be predicting the more proximal things that eventually predict real-world things. I wonder if you both agree that lay understandings of implicit bias don't have that nuanced character no. uh, 
<laughs> yes, I agree. It's yes. I, 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 and I think this really goes to the question I was saying earlier. There's the basic science and there's the late understanding of the basic science. Well, but I mean, I, I just want to make sure that we're not blaming lay people right now for no, no, it's our fault. being understanding it because sure, sure, sure. Banaji and Greenwald wrote a popular book, Blind Spot, that makes all these ridiculous claims and, and presents them as uh, real science from Harvard. How can we doubt that? And maybe now they're backpedaling some of their claims, but, you know, they're out there and they have influenced public debates uh, because Harvard has such a, you know, prominent role in American life to influence public debates. And, uh, uh, of course, the Obama administration, he's a Harvard alumni. Uh, so, you know, these ideas were, you know, presented as if they're based on scientific evidence. And that's not true. And that's important to let the public know as well, right? And I think partly when we now have implicit bias training, there, there's now also different reactions to that. Because one reaction is to that is that we're letting people off the hook easily, right? Oh, yeah. So you're not responsible for your prejudice because you're not aware of it. You can't, you know, how can we be responsible for things that we are not aware of, Right. But on the other hand, I think it also makes it so much easier to have a conversation because we're saying, yes, look, uh, uh, you know, your, the test shows your, your, your show some prejudice, but look, it's not your fault. It was all in your unconscious. And how can you, you know, so as a result, now we can help you basically. It, it takes a little bit, you know, the moral element out of discussions about race. And maybe that was the main helpful element of it that suddenly people were able to say yes yes i have these biases because they could blame the unconscious for it or something like that but then it's a political you know rhetorical vehicle this is not science so here's a question for you um i, I tell my joke that i'm someone who sees the glass as a quarter full um <laughs> so trying to find the optimistic path forward right i think that like i said earlier the IIT was very useful in the 1990s to take begin conversations. I think that we can all agree that the conversation we're having right now is not the conversation that reflects the nuance of the science. How do we move forward to actually have the conversation to use the data that we have, know what we know about the fact that, like you said, everyone is biased. It's useful to know that. But adding back in the moral piece, adding back in the fact that responsibility has to be, like, how do we change the conversation, do you think? I, I think it's, it's possible to have a conversation about race and prejudice, and I think the American public right now has it, uh, talking about retribution and slavery, being more open about it. We don't need some fake signs to have those conversations. Um, wait, wait, wait. I, I, I agree we don't need to have fake science, but there is good social cognition research that's, you know. No, I mean, because in a broader picture, I mean, the whole idea of the IIT was fertilized by the ideas that so much of human behavior happens outside of awareness. You know, we're bringing Freud back, but now we're doing it with real science, with our cognitive tasks. Wait, can I ask and, you a question, and, though? But, but that has to be true to some degree. So much of our experience is outside of, right? Even intention no, is- I, Right there, Bill, you know, just be careful. I mean, so much of our experience is outside of awareness. Experience is defined as Sorry. things that are in awareness. The idea that so much of our behavior happens without us ever noticing. I mean, we all, of course, have noticed that suddenly we walk, find ourselves in front of the fridge and we're like, well, how did I get here? Yeah. Or something like that. Yes, there's automated behaviors like that. But is that really the majority of our behaviors? Well, I don't think so. Usually when I end up with my car at my workplace, it's because I knew I was going to go to work. I'm going to let Will respond yeah. briefly, and then uh, because I'm aware of the clock, yeah. I'm going to uh, start to draw this to a close. I know. Although I want to continue this. <laughs> I know. I know. Only she's nice up for drinks. But this this is again. I want to make a distinction between you know all the levels of unconscious automatic, right? I am not 
typically aware of all the different fine motor commands I'm doing when driving my car, right? There is a lot of perception that's pre-filtered and pre-filtered through, you know, different mechanisms. And that's what I'm kind of pushing back on the fact saying that understanding the fact that what we're perceiving and consciously experiencing is a subset of everything else that's going on is an important thing to acknowledge, right? You're using your example of how you got to the refrigerator, like what you perceive, what you would say. highly automated situations, and maybe to bring it all the way back, because I was also wondering, like Michael, so you're in Maine. Uh, I mean, there are all these jokes about Vermont, Maine, like, you know, uh, that there are no black people. Uh, So I guess it's a pretty white place. Yes. And so maybe for some people it's pretty... Uh, 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 unfamiliar to meet somebody like you or something like that. And so it's not a situation where you suddenly, you know, are just doing your automated behaviors. A lot of white people are like, oh, now I'm talking to a black person. Oh, my God. You know, am I showing racism? Am I being as friendly as I would be or whatever? I mean, it's it, it's a salient stimulus. Uh, and as a result, people are you know, becoming aware. And that makes it actually less likely that they're being automatic, uh, showing automatic biases. In the study with the police officers, for example, uh, the idea is why we actually didn't see racial bias. Uh, could be that, you know, highly trained officers, they focus on the weapon. They're looking at, you know, is this a gun or is this a, a phone that somebody pulls out of a pocket? And, 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 and I'll, just inter- I'll, just, I'll just interrupt to say Josh Carell has, along with uh, colleagues, some data that's that support that idea that trained officers on a different kind of uh, task, uh, Carell shooter bias task, perform differently from the rest of us due to their training and exactly the way that you're suggesting. Um, but I, as I promised, I am going to uh, begin to draw this to a close. And the question that I want to put to each of you is a two-part question. I want to ask you to imagine that you are giving advice uh, to a junior colleague who is interested in studying implicit bias. And, and, uh, and it will not be a very interesting answer, uh, Uli, if you say, don't do it uh, <laughs> for a different answer. Uh, your, uh, my, my question is, First, what advice would you give them regarding their responsibilities to the rest of the research community? But then also, what are their responsibilities to the broader public? My advice is to study some real behavior that matters uh, and do it, you know, and it's hard research because you have to study real behavior, have to do it in big samples uh, to, uh, to detect relatively small effects uh, but study real behavior. You know, you could do that with, with undergrad students and, and there's a black confederate and study their nonverbal behavior and show whether maybe uh, implicit processes influence things that we are less aware of, less controllable, like our nonverbal actions, you know, are influenced. I mean, this makes so much sense. And, you know, for 20 years, nobody has done that important research. There's been so much talk about like, you know, is it a state? Is it a trait? You know, how much is it a stable disposition? How much does it change from situation to situation? There has been no proper longitudinal research, you know, to examine those questions. So, so, so just, don't just, to... just do your one hour click reaction time study and, and focus on just the cognitive processes alone. If it's not tied to some real behavior that matters, it's not really that useful. So, so to be clear, you're not advising this hypothetical junior researcher to drop the IIT, but to study it in conjunction with some sort of real-world behavior. No, no, I didn't say you have to study the IIT. For example, you know, you want to study the real behaviors. You don't need the IIT. I mean, the IIT, throw it in there if you want. It takes five minutes, right? So you have another measure in your study. But what is really interesting when it comes to implicit bias to me is, for example, like the situation in Starbucks right, where the uh, uh, person called uh, now the police because two black uh, uh, people in her store wouldn't buy coffee and she wanted them to leave and they didn't leave. So then the police came and all that and then they closed down Starbucks for a day. Now, the real question in these situations is, of course, she noticed that they were black, you know, she's not colorblind. But 
you know, the question is, did she call the police because they were black, right? And that's where we have wiggle room. We can say, you know, they were not polite to her. But would she really have called the police if some white people had been not polite in the same situation, right? So I think it's about attributions. And how do we people sometimes justify maybe discriminatory behavior because they think there's a good reason for it? So it wasn't because the person was black. I think that's where the term implicit actually makes really sense because, you know, we know what we did. We know that the person was white or black. But we never really can have introspective insight into, you know, how much did the fact that the person was one race or another influence our behavior because we don't have a control group in our everyday life. But that could be what experiments could find out. First of all, I just want to, even though I'm going to go in the complete opposite direction, I want to first validate kind of what you know, Uli just said there, because I, I think that's what I meant earlier when I said about you know, implicit bias in that sense, has the fact that you don't actually know from any specific moments, right, how much different factors are playing into your judgments. And I, I agree that topics like that are really important to kind of explore. Uh, being that I define myself as much more of a social cognition researcher rather than a personality psychologist. I think that what we need to do better as a field, and I think it actually helps with this idea of determining the construct and construct validity, is update our cognitive models. Uh, so much of social cognition, I think, is still based in the cognitive models of the 1980s. And there has been a lot of development in memory research in attention research and these ideas of things like predictive coding and how we actually filter information pre-consciously. There are beautiful, beautiful new models. And I think that another direction to go to be responsible is to very seriously update the cognitive mechanisms that give rise to kind of behavior and try to re-explore Right, what does it mean for automaticity and things like that from these new models? Because we have to, I agree with Uli, we have to attach to behavior, but if you want to do the cognition, right, we have to have that the right level of analysis because the only way to bridge a multi-level science is to articulate everything properly at each level and to articulate the relationships between them. So with that in mind, I think the responsibility should be to understand the level of analysis that we're working in and not overgeneralize between levels of analysis as well. And is that latter uh, statement also your characterization of our responsibility to the, broad, to the broader public? Yes, I, I, I think that I think greater care needs to be taken to understand um, what we can say, what we can't say, the limitations. And earlier, I articulated when we we're talking about the fact that sociologists are exploring these topics. There's questions about systemic processes. I think that getting to a better multi-level science of knowing who knows what will be really useful to explore these topics. And and by the way, I just want to say I'm really bummed that this is not available via video uh, for yeah. uh, podcast <laughs> listeners because uh, Uli's cat uh, has, has joined him in the frame, uh, which is adorable. But, um, but, but Will... Um, with respect to the public, uh, Uli made very clear where he stands on the, the uh, appropriateness of feedback at the Project Implicit uh, website. Uh, he's not he's not a fan. <laughs> what uh, What about you, Will? Oh, that's putting me in sticky situations. I'll be honest. Feel free. Feel free to punt if you want. To. <laughs> no, 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 no. If I punt, Uli will drive down to St. George right now and call me out for it. Um, I think that there are multiple issues. We can have a whole other one-hour conversation, <laughs> right, about that feedback. One of the things that we're actually kind of even exploring in my lab right now um, really has to do with you know what do these numbers mean, right? A 500 millisecond difference, right? Strong bias was interpreted as a Cohen's D effect size, but I have no idea what 500 milliseconds means or 200 milliseconds or 1,000 milliseconds. 
right? It could be the stuff's all real, but it's not until you get to a minute and a half reaction time, right, that it actually takes effect. And I worry a little bit about saying strong bias, moderate bias, slight bias as a function of effect size, because until we attach it to pragmatic things, especially with it bouncing around a little bit, it seems kind of tricky. So, so I, I, I will now come out as against that idea, despite the fact I am now alienating a bunch of my friends. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Will Cunningham and Uli Shabak for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on them and the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. In addition to thanking them, I want to thank those of you who support Tatter at its Patreon page. Your support helps me sustain this project, and it also means a lot to me. It especially means a lot given that I had to take the fall off, but you continue to support me every month. I do always appreciate new supporters, and if you are interested, visit patreon.com slash tatter for more information. But if you are a current student where I teach, do not sign up. I cannot accept your support. But for everyone else, come on in, the water's just fine. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can post a review at Apple Podcasts. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well. <laughs>